0: Welcome to The Power Podcast, I'm your host, Malia Warner. Today's episode 83, Lies of the Magpie chapters 38 and 39. Hello and welcome to one of the final episodes of our summer series. Today's episode is chapters 38 and 39 from the audio version of my memoir, Lies of the Magpie. And usually in these podcast episodes, I give you a little bit of background before just diving into the audio recordings. I'm not going to do that today. Chapter 38 was one of the very last chapters that I wrote. It was the chapter that I wish I didn't have to write. It was a chapter I would have liked to have just completely left out of the book, but it is an essential chapter to the story. And when I set out to tell my story as honestly as I could, that meant including this part. And that is all I'm going to say. With that, here are the next two chapters from Lies of the Magpie. Chapter 38, Elevator As excited as I am for this summer of adventure, I'm plagued with worry that I will have a freak-out episode around my extended family. Other than Anise and Paul, I haven't talked with my siblings about my condition. I have no idea if they talk to each other about me. Will they have conversations about me when I'm not in the room? Will they grill Aaron about what's going on? Aaron The doctor wanted her to start medication three months ago, but she refuses. Family member. Is she still going to the witch doctor? Erin. She insists it's making her better, but I don't see any difference. Family member. Should we check her into a psychiatric unit? Although I believe the treatments are working, all the detoxing and spinal adjusting and muscle testing has me feeling stripped bare. My once strong facades are broken down And I don't like the idea of being paraded in front of family, naked and exposed, like a plucked chicken. I'd prefer to be alone while my liver detoxifies, my kidneys reboot, and my adrenals recharge. And even though I'm not a spokesperson for holistic medicine, the burden of proof is on me to affirm that I'm right in not taking prescription drugs. We arrive at the cabin west of Yellowstone and the kids quickly run out to find their cousins and claim rooms with bunk beds so they can stay awake talking. Aaron hauls in suitcases while I unload groceries into the pantry and refrigerator. For the first few days, the trip goes well. Mrs. Hyde doesn't appear. I don't freak out, burst into a fit of crying, or drip emotional goo over anyone. I am extremely cautious. At night, I go to bed at the same time as the children. From my cabin room I can hear the laughter of my siblings playing games and telling jokes. I'm missing out on the fun, but I want my body to recover its natural sleep cycles and not become dependent on the procortisol. In the afternoons after lunch, when everyone is draped out on couches for a midday nap, I hear Dr. Thorpe's voice in my head. Adults who nap during the day often have trouble falling asleep at night. It's too risky to mess with my newly recovered nighttime sleep, so instead of napping, I strap the camera over my shoulder and go for a walk. This is where it starts. The feeling. As I walk a narrow trail through aspen and pine trees, the nerves down my back shiver and my skin prickles. A goose walked over my grave sensation. To my left, a twig snaps, and holding the camera tight like a tucked football, I run full speed back down the trail, not stopping until I reach our cabin. This happens for the next three days. Once, when I'm sitting on a bridge, my bare feet dangling in the water, I sense that someone is watching. Jumping to my feet, I look all around. It could have been a bear or a cougar. It could have been a murderer hiding in the thick brush waiting for an unsuspecting victim. Another time I've taken a book to sit on a log bench beneath a shady tree when an ominous awareness tells me I must move and quick. Barely gathering my book and jacket, I roll off the log and scramble several feet forward on hands and knees before working up to a run. Only after covering several yards do I turn to see if the tree fell and crushed the log. It hadn't. The scene of the log bench highlighted with a sliver of mountain sunlight through the pines is picturesque and peaceful, but my heart pounds with the urgency of trying to escape a burning building trapped by a locked door. When I call Aunt Laya, she says, what if it's not a feeling? What if it's a premonition? I don't want to believe her, but what other explanation is there? I'm staying in a beautiful cabin nestled in a magnificent forest, Surrounded by giggling children, good food, and my favorite people in all the world. And yet I cannot shake the feeling that this will be my last summer with my family. And it's not this sickness that will be the death of me. No, rather it's going to be an accident. An animal mauling, a kidnapping, a murder. This awareness doesn't settle well with me. Should I be thankful that God is cluing me in so I can make the most of the little time I have left? or angry that his warning is making me so jittery that I can't enjoy anything. Despite going to bed early, I don't sleep well at night, thinking through the numerous ways I could die here, in addition to the very real possibility that Aaron and the kids might be better off without me. As sad as I am about the prospect of dying, what worries me most is that my family will mistakenly assume that I caused my own death, Because it is on my record. She took her own life. She committed suicide. They have to know I would never... But then Laya mentions that maybe they know about the elevator incident... So, when I hear the rustle in the trees behind me, once again I take off in a sprint, not stopping until I have opened the basement door of the cabin and run inside, leaning against the wall to catch my breath after locking the door behind me. Because depression is in my medical records, my fear is that if anything mysterious ever happens to me, the police will immediately claim suicide. And what if my family believes them? Especially after what happened in the elevator. My parents live on the second floor of their Salt Lake City condo building, but every time we visit, Danny and Kate insist on riding the elevator. They hit the numbers for various levels, and we usually stop on every floor on our way to the top, just for kicks and giggles, before riding back down to the second floor. When we arrived in Utah over a month ago, we drove directly to my parents' building. Aaron's youngest brother, Robert, was getting married in a few days, and the wedding luncheon would be in the social room of my parents' building since they live so close to the Salt Lake Temple where the wedding would take place. My one job for wedding preparation was to count if there was enough seating for the guests, or if the caterers needed to bring more chairs. We pulled into the parking garage on June 8th, Jack's first birthday. My mother opened the door wearing an apron. The aroma of fresh baking wafted into the hallway. Hello, guys! She held out her arms and the kids surrounded her legs with hugs. Come here, sweet boy. She lifted Jack from my arms. Happy birthday. Grandma has a present for you. We followed her inside. Yum, it smells like cake. Danny sniffed the air while Kate and Tanner ran immediately to the secret spot behind the couch where Grandma keeps her toy bucket. In no time the bucket was emptied, every toy spread across the front room. After dinner, Mom put one candle and a piece of cake for Jack. I held his hands down while we sang Happy Birthday. Then Danny, Kate, and Tanner helped him blow out the candle. One year ago, Jack was born. One year ago, Danny graduated from kindergarten. One year felt like an eon. Aaron had brought in our luggage from the van. And I had brought in a horrible sensation of skin crawling that I couldn't shake, despite my mom's homemade dinner and the birthday fun. Helping wash dinner dishes, my heart was picking up speed, reminding me of when the kids play with the wind-up metronome on my piano. Whenever they force the metronome gauge to its lowest point until the pendulum clicks wildly back and forth over 200 beats per minute, I shout at them, That's not a toy! You're going to break it! This is what my heart was doing, clicking faster and faster and faster until it seemed my chest would explode. Keeping my head down and my hands in sudsy water, I scrubbed the pots and nodded while Mom updated me with news of aunts, uncles, and cousins. After dishes, Mom and I sat on the couch, watching Jack push his new circus train across the carpet. Aaron, Danny, Kate, and Tanner had gone out to the balcony and were rocking on the porch swing waving to the pedestrians strolling through Brigham Young Historic Park. My mother's mouth moved and words swirled around my head, reporting the due dates of pregnant cousins. Then the words morphed into a buzzing, and Jack's train appeared as a smear of psychedelic colors. The metronome in my chest morphed into the countdown of an explosive device. The condo walls closed in, My skin itched and I looked around to see if spiders and scorpions were pouring in through cracks in the doors and windows. Centipedes crawled up my back while I knelt down, changing Jack's stinky diaper. And somehow, I kept all these threats safely hidden from my mother. My only choice was escape. I'm going to throw out Jack's diaper, I called behind me, rushing to the door. Down the hall, I pounded the elevator button over and over and continually looked up and down the hallway to see who was chasing me. Just in time, the still door slid open and swallowed me inside the protection of its small space. My hands squeezed my head in a vice grip, a futile endeavor to push the explosion back down into the soles of my feet. The door started to open. Had my mom come looking for me? The numbers were blurry, so my hand slid down the panel, setting multiple circles aglow. Each time the elevator stopped and the doors attempted to open, I hit the close button with the urgent need to shut out the light of a new hallway on a new apartment level. Finally, at the 13th floor, marked P for penthouse, my thumb held the close button and my forehead landed against the wall with a thunk. On the other side of the metal doors was a staircase to the roof. And though I'd never before set foot on the roof of my parents' building, in my mind I could see and experience every minute detail, from the way the tips of my shoes looked hanging over to the ledge, to how the wind felt fresh as it brushed the hair off the back of my neck. The city skyline surrounded me in all directions—the Salt Lake Temple, the State Capitol, the East Mountains, the Western Salt flats Four years earlier, the world had watched the Winter Olympics hosted by Salt Lake City. From our Arizona living room, we had cheered when the television camera showed this very apartment building in the background. At that time, I could have never predicted, imagining how it would feel to fall 13 stories to the sidewalk below. Would my death devastate my parents? I'd never seen my mom or dad anything but rock solid. Would this shake them? The death of their middle daughter? When an officer knocked on their apartment door, would they take his word, or would they have to see for themselves the broken form of their girl outlined in chalk on the very path they walk every Sunday on their way to church? What would their congregation say when they heard how Howard and Marine's adult daughter killed herself by jumping off the roof of their building, her body in pieces directly below the window? Would my death unravel them, or would they square their jaws and continue forward in their stalwart, stoic manner? My mom would cry for a few days. My dad would plan his talk for my funeral, but they would not break. Where did I come from, then, that I break so easily? A solid, whiny beep rang through the elevator. The doors were angry, protesting my thumb for holding them closed. I lifted my neck, feeling the blood rush to the spot where my forehead was flattened against the elevator wall. An unsturdy step back and the blurry panel of numbers spun in a circle, seeming to lift off the panel and float in the air around me. Confused about where I was and if the pictures in my head were real, they felt so real. My fingers groped to find number two. The elevator scent was a long exhale. When the doors deposited me on level two, I expected to be met by a mob of people gathered with torches and pitchforks to condemn me for my treasonous fantasy. But the hall was empty. Back inside the condo, I held Jack's innocence away from my tarnished heart. The next day, at Robert's wedding reception, Images from the elevator stalked me, popping out at inopportune moments no matter the maneuvers I made to lose them. During the luncheon I boxed myself away in the kitchen, washing my hands often, not wanting a smear of my darkness spreading to their guests. There is no way anyone could possibly know about my haunted vision in the elevator. I have not breathed a word, but in any case, after locking the basement cabin door behind me. I find my journal and fill three handwritten pages of assurance that I am happy and would never, never voluntarily end my life. Then I leave the notebook in a place my family can find. On our last night in Yellowstone, Paul and I are sitting by a campfire, helping the younger cousins transfer their roasted marshmallows onto graham crackers. Licking gooey marshmallow from my fingertips, I ask Paul how high my TSH number can get before I need to panic. He's not a fan of homeopathic medicine, but he's not big on drugs either, so he has no problem with me holding off on taking Synthroid. Paul has been supportive and answered all my questions the multiple times I've called him on the phone. He's seen people with a TSH of 27 who didn't know they were sick, so my level 6 doesn't worry him. Paul grabs Tanner's roasting stick in the nick of time before the pointy edge gouges Sammy's eyes. Then, out of the blue and looking straight into the fire, Paul says, What if it's depression? His comment is surprising because I've never told Paul about my postpartum depression or my doctor prescribing antidepressants. My parents don't know that part either. I don't feel depressed. I describe for Paul my image of depression as a person who stays in bed all day not wanting to do anything, having no interest, no ambition, no goals, no desire to participate in life. I don't feel like that at all. I care about life. I want back in the game. I pause and stir the flames with a piece of wood. Is that depression? Paul tosses another log into the fire, stirring sparks that rise upward. Some flicker out early, some seem to last indefinitely. Is it? I ask again. Is that depression? I don't know, he says finally. Chapter 39, Hurricane. It is the last day of August, and I'm parked outside a pharmacy drive through where I've passed the paper prescription for Synthroid that Dr. Thorpe printed six months ago through the metal fold-out drawer and instructed the pharmacist to fill it with the generic brand. That'll be ready in 20 minutes. The voice crackles over the intercom. For 20 minutes, I drive the more secluded roads of Sun City Grand, fuming over how Dr. Erdman was a bogus fake all along. Had I wanted health so desperately that I'd fabricated a false belief in his promise of getting 100% well? Back at the drive through window, the pharmacy technician places a white paper bag in the drawer. Take the pill about the same time every day on an empty stomach, morning is best, about a half hour before eating breakfast. Your total is $7. Six months of spine cracking, acupuncture, arm dropping, disgusting foot baths, and $1,000 only to be right back to what Dr. Thorpe prescribed in the first place, and only $7 poorer. Maybe it's my fault for taking a two-month break from treatments. At the end of July, we made our second return to Earth's atmosphere after a summer of snowboarding. Once again, the reacclimation to regular life had been choppy. For one, the jack we unbuckled from the forward-facing car seat at the end of the summer was a different jack from the barely-walking baby we'd buckled into his rear-facing car seat at the beginning of June. Where and when he learned to climb, I can't say. But now that we're home, he's constantly laddering himself onto the table, the kitchen island, even the top of the refrigerator. He's discovering new heights of exploratory opportunities that didn't exist when he was a belly crawler. Aaron started calling him Hurricane due to his general speed, force of destruction, and the difficulty of predicting the shore on which his chaos would land. Add the fact that he drools like a Saint Bernard, and you get a combination of wind and moisture reminiscent of chasing the Tasmanian Devil out of the shower. One evening, I found Jack fully clothed and standing, proud as a peacock, in the toilet bowl, the full roll of toilet paper unwound in white layers around him. The scene brought to mind a sign that hung in the community pool of my hometown. In bold red letters, the sign read, We don't swim in your toilet, so don't pee in our pool. Lifting him cautiously under the arms from the porcelain basin, I could only hope the last person who used this pool before Jack had remembered to flush. At my post-summer follow-up, Dr. Thorpe said my thyroid hormone level was in the normal range, but on the high end of normal. He recommended Synthroid again and asked if I wanted a new prescription. I told him I still had the first prescription he gave me. At home, when Aaron asked about my test results, I slapped the lab copy on the counter. He looked at the paper. Don't you think it's time to stop ignoring the tests and take the medication? Standing in the kitchen with Aaron's gaze burrowing into me, an image came to mind. The end of last summer, right after we'd come home from Utah, Aaron had chaperoned a youth wilderness trek. Jack was eight weeks old, or perhaps I would have tagged along. The first night at camp, a monsoon storm blew in with a ferocity that lifted 10-gallon water barrels off the ground. Shouting at each other through glassy sheets of ice-cold water, Aaron and the other men tried to call out questions and instructions to keep the teens safe. But they couldn't hear a thing. The wind drowned all communication, even when they were practically face-to-face. This is what I tried to explain to Aaron. The sense that I was in the middle of a storm and people were screaming instructions at me. My body was trying to tell me something. I knew it was. But for all the noise, I couldn't understand what it was saying. I told Aaron I wasn't ignoring the tests. I was trying to discern the message. In all the commotion, I couldn't deny my gut instinct telling me this thyroid malfunction was the tip of the iceberg to deeper issues. If taking Synthroid helped to ease my symptoms, would I pull back into the fast lane of life and stop looking for answers? I'm trying to heal completely, I told him. I don't want a band-aid fix. I want to get to the core problem. That doesn't make any sense, his voice raised with intensity. You are destroying your body. That night, I thrashed around in bed. My pro-cortisol pills were gone, and I refused to get more because the point of homeopathic treatment was to not take pills for the rest of my life. Listening to Aaron snore peacefully, I wanted to put a cinder block in my pillow and knock him in the face. Instead, I left to wrestle out the night on the family room couch, disturbed by gruesome dreams of finding Kate dead, hanging upside down, her toenails and fingernails torn off and dripping blood. Aaron walked out in the early dawn. Why can't you stand to sleep by me? Do I repulse you? Despite my reassurance that this sleeping issue was all parts me and zero parts him, I could tell he didn't believe me. Fully intending to resume treatments with Dr. Erdman, I returned to his office a few days after the appointment with Dr. Thorpe. He greeted me with his jolly, Hey, how are you? How was your summer? While repeating muscle testing and making adjustments to my spine, Dr. Erdman proceeded to describe a new treatment regimen With an abundance of exuberance, he explained the background of an allergy reduction program and shared the testimonial of a client who was so allergic to carrots she couldn't be within 100 feet of a carrot without having an allergic reaction. Then, after finishing this particular treatment, she became popular in her neighborhood for baking the most delectable carrot cake. I'd never heard of anyone being allergic to carrots. Unlike my first meeting with Dr. Erdman, nothing about this regimen felt right to me. Instead of standing up and voting in unanimous favor, my cells were pleading. Please don't put us through another six months of this. We've been fighting so long we don't have strength for another battle. I can't start a new round of treatments, I told him. I have tried, but I am not getting any better. My body can't take any more. Dr. Erdman would have been justified bringing up the fact that I didn't see his colleague in Utah, not one time, over the summer. But instead, he surprised me by saying, I think you're right. Sometimes your body needs outside support while it's working on healing. He suggested that I take a natural thyroid supplement, which does basically the same thing as Synthroid, but is derived naturally from the thyroids of pigs or cows instead of being synthetically created in a lab. My mind drew a cartoon image of me swallowing the pills and slowly growing a snout and a curly pink tail. Will it make me oink? Dr. Erdman laughed, but I wasn't amused. How natural is ingesting swine hormones? I went home and mulled over the options for a few days, did some research, then returned to Dr. Erdman's office. I need to stop treatment. I gave him a spiel that sounded a lot like I was breaking up with a boyfriend. It's not you, it's me, I need a break, my body needs a break, my bank account needs a break. I thanked him for all his help. He told me to come back as soon as I was ready to resume. At the last minute, a question popped out of my mouth. No idea where it came from. Can you recommend any books that might help me? He nodded and wrote a title on the top of my notebook page. Call my office any time. Dr. Erdman patted my shoulder. I had no doubt he was being sincere. I paid for the visit by debit card and shook my head when Julia asked if I wanted to schedule another appointment. In my car, I pounded the steering wheel and screamed. The whole drive to the pharmacy, I teetered about whether my treatments with Dr. Erdman had done any good or if they'd all been a well-played con. What about how he'd found a buildup of thallium in my body, though I'd never told him about growing up near coal-burning power plants? And the foamy mucus in the water around my feet when I'd been coughing up phlegm for months? And the adrenal burnout? Everything he said had made so much sense to me. But in the end, he'd offered the same, albeit natural, drug as Dr. Thorpe. With the white paper prescription bag sitting on the passenger seat, I stop at the library to check out the book Dr. Erdman recommended. It isn't in their collection, but the clerk helps me fill out a request for interlibrary loan. At home, I open the front door to find Jack, seated nobly atop the piano in the spot reserved for the bust of Chopin. He is pounding keys with his feet and shaking clouds of baby powder onto stacks of music books scattered over the floor. A trail of drool has drawn tracks in the dust on the piano, so one might think a snail crawled across the lid. Come here, pal. I hoist him onto my hip and wipe his mouth dry with my sleeve. You are a hurricane. This is Malia Warner. Thank you for listening today. If you haven't yet left a review for Lies of the Magpie on Amazon or Goodreads or both, would you take a second and do that? It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much. Also, if you're not currently a subscriber on my Monday message email list, go to MaliaWarner.com, click on subscribe, and every Monday you will get, in addition to this podcast episode, an inspirational message as well as any news or announcements for upcoming classes and other offers. I wish you the best in your last week of summer, or if you are getting back to school or getting back to work, blessings to all of our teachers out there. Good luck crossing our fingers that school will work and that all our teachers and staff and lunch people and bus drivers and students stay healthy and same to you. Have a good week. I'll meet you back here next time for another episode of Power Principles, the podcast. Until then, bye-bye, my friend. Take care.